it was Elmbrook's turn to go back to that church uh, and, and visit on a Sunday evening. And to their horror, Jill and Stuart were the only two people from Elmbrook to show up. Hey everyone, welcome to What in the World. My name is Jake Lee and I am the host of this podcast. And this is episode eight. Really exciting that we've got so many out already and we've got a lot more things coming down the pipeline right now. So last week, we wrapped up talking about a conversation about the Emanuel Hospital Association in India. And right now, I want to give you a quick update on that. So far, India is still open. They have lifted the lockdown restrictions, which is meaning that a lot of patients and surgeries and various things that have been delayed, people are now able to come into the hospital to get treatment. So this is exciting. Uh, the Emanuel Hospital has also been able to expand on a couple of the hospitals to make sure that you know, they have the proper facilities. So as of right now, things seem to be moving in a positive direction. I also wanted to remind everyone that we really appreciate people who are commenting on this podcast, who are sharing it with friends. Like I've said in previous episodes, we really just want to get these stories of what God is doing in front of more people and encourage more people to step into this kingdom building life that God wants us to be part of. Share it, like it, comment all of those things. And before we dive into the main part of the podcast, which is going to be the interview, uh, I wanted to listen to a cultural blunder from our guest, who is Dr. Peter Borg, a local pastor who lives in the city of Milwaukee. And just a reminder, we do this part of the podcast with cultural blunders because whenever we're doing ministry, whenever we're going across cultures, which we're called to be with people who are different from us from a biblical perspective and to reach out to them, that means we're going to make mistakes. We are going to put our foot in our mouth. We are going to make blunders. So let's listen to this cultural blunder. So when my wife and I moved uh, into Sherman Park, both college educated, we had been well-trained in terms of theology and application of scripture through college ministry, myself in university and my wife, uh, Campus Crusade. We had some natural leadership abilities and so Moving into a neighborhood, you know, had a, a variety of economic strata uh, of the residents, you know, from, you know, sheer poverty to working class to, you know, some college grads. The real easy assumption was, I wonder what God is going to do through me as a result of living here, as if I'm some sort of savior uh, because I come in knowing the Bible or having a college degree. It didn't take long just to recognize how foolish a perspective that was. And the reason that God put me here primarily was not for anybody who lived around me, but was because he wanted to do stuff in me and I'd have to recognize that about myself, life circumstances and some things that were joys and some things that were uh, challenges. But the, really the question that I need to ask myself, what's God gonna do in me uh, whenever I'm in a situation rather than what is God gonna do through me? What's the first, what's God gonna do through me? What's the the, the responsibility and the glory on me. You know, I'm a failure if I don't do something good, but when I do do something good, I get to praise myself. Well, none of that is, is scriptural. And if I ask what is God going to do in me, well, then God is the one taking the action, and I'm just the vessel where the action occurs. All right, everybody. I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Peter Borg. And before I dive into introducing you more, what was your doctorate in? Uh, I was in American history. Uh, my dissertation it was called The Colored Problem, Milwaukee's White Protestant Churches Respond to the Second Great Migration. And so essentially my, my research question was, how did 
white Protestant churches in the city of Milwaukee in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s respond to African Americans as that population group moved into previously all white uh, neighborhoods? Did they flee to the suburbs? Did they kind of fumble around and not quite be sure what, what to do or, you know, walking them with open arms because the gospel says it applies to everybody. Uh, it was a it was a very fun project. I got to dig into a lot of church archives and learn a lot, both the history of the city uh, and church history in, in, the, in this country. That sounds really exciting. And obviously, we're going to talk about some of that today. You have a passion for the city you live in, Milwaukee. You've lived in Sherman Park for 22 years, where you planted a church, uh, City Brook, which was a plant of Eastbrook Church, which you attended previously. And in case you guys don't know, Eastbrook's also a plant of Elmbrook Church. Besides that, the other connection you have to Elmbrook is in 2015 at our Harvest Fest, you uh, led a three-night seminar, and you also helped write the race, or what was it, the Reconcile devotional. And right. if you guys have been following Elmbrook's uh, emails recently, we've actually just finished going through that devotional. Uh, you were one of the writers of that. There's a lot of connection that we have besides just your knowledge of the area, the fact that Elmbrook is in that area. So that's one of the churches that you were looking into. Correct. Today, we're going to discuss a little bit of what your dissertation was even in relationship to Elmbrook Church. Uh, but before we dive into that, I want to give you an opportunity, I guess, just to share a little of your own heartbeat. Do you want to share a little about that first? You know, I, I had a unique opportunity growing up in that I grew up in a racially diverse uh, suburb of Chicago called Evanston, Illinois. And so a lot of friendships and relationships and life experience saved me from having some blinders on um, that a lot of white Americans who grew up in all white areas just by happenstance are still kind of uh, hindered by in some ways. That reality of where I grew up as I got to college and really started digging into scripture on my own helped me to recognize that there's kind of a disconnect between what takes place in the American church and what we read in scripture. You know, when God in Genesis uh, makes his covenant with Abram, later Abraham, the purpose was not to bless Abraham and his descendants solely, but God specifically says, all nations will be blessed through you. Hmm. Not just all European nations or all rich nations or all, you know, whatever, it's all nations. And then when we, uh, later in the Old Testament, and we see where the nation of Israel was physically located, uh, because Israel was supposed to be a billboard for the world of what it looked like to follow the living God, they were at the crossroads physically of trade routes between Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. So a perfect location for a billboard. It'd be like being a billboard at the Marquette Interchange rather than being a billboard somewhere north of Sheboygan. Yeah, you know, you're you right in the middle of a crossing of all of these differing nations all have to go through this area. Exactly. And then, you know, one of the most powerful prayers in all of Scripture is Jesus's prayer on the night he was betrayed, so at the Last Supper, Jesus prays first for himself and then for the disciples, but then he prays for you and me, Jake, and all the rest of us. <laughs> he prays in John 17, verses 20 through 23, essentially, and he says, Father, please help them to remain in you and to be unified, because if they remain in you and they are unified, then the whole world is going to know that you love them and sent me to rescue them. That's an amazing promise, right? All we have to do is remain in, 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 in the Father and be unified with one another. That's the best evangelism we can possibly do. 
And yet for 400 years in America, we've kind of said, ah, no thanks. We're not interested in taking Jesus up on that promise because most people in this country go to church with people who look like them, earn like them, live near them, vote like them, cheer for the same professional football teams. And I, you know, I'm a Wisconsin resident who's a Bears fan, so that's a different story. <laughs> that's um, another division. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And I just I think we're missing out on this opportunity reach the lost by coming together across every conceivable division that Satan has placed between human beings and saying, nope, at the foot of the cross, we are all more sinful than we can possibly imagine and more loved and forgiven than we can ever hope for. Hmm. And if we, if we do that, then Jesus promises the world's going to come to the foot of the cross and, and recognize the same things that are, true, that are true about us are true about them. You know, and then so Revelation 7, 8 very famously says, people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language are going to be together for eternity worshiping God. And many of us already claim to be worshiping God, but we do it separate from one another. So we don't really fit in with this biblical trajectory it is very clear in scripture. We say, oh, no, we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to risk being uncomfortable or saying the wrong thing or, you know, whatever it is. We're just going to go ahead and have a corporate worship experience that, that is maybe easy as opposed to one that causes us to have to consider what we think and feel and say and ask for forgiveness and be willing to forgive and all this other messy stuff that, frankly, many of us do already in marriage or in parenting or in sure. friendships or small groups. But Jesus doesn't say that doing it in those contexts will cause everybody in the world to recognize that God loves them and send him to rescue them. He says, be unified. And I think we've got to think about, are we joining in fellowship with people that we are already naturally unified with? in which case the gospel, the power of the gospel doesn't really play out? Or are we deliberately putting ourselves in situations where we know that there are things that we're going to disagree about or misunderstandings over or whatever, and we've got to take the Holy Spirit living in us and say, okay, show me what's wrong with me first before I point out what I see is wrong with that other person. Because when we embody that, then people who aren't Christians go, well, this is interesting. Why are they behaving this way? And we get to point to Jesus. Well, and how different would that be in this time? Right. Obviously, throughout history, that's a natural tendency to be with people who are like you, people who look like you, people who think like you. But even especially right now, we're seeing this division in America, especially, I'll just use our own country for context, mm -hmm. but you're seeing this division grow. You're seeing it like a catalyst of social media and just media in general. I, that's what I think of them as like a catalyst, just continuing to push this divide further and further in mm -hmm. our culture. Where people in families can't stand being with each other. You're seeing friends uh, separate. You're seeing uh, churches. You're seeing churches split over uh, political issues, some which you could argue are very important. But that being said, especially as the church, supposed to be this unified group, instead we're seeing people move away from differences rather than moving toward them and trying to seek how do we have unity. And so I think that is a very important thing in this time, like incredibly important right now, especially. It's always been important because Jesus said, that's how they will see me. Right. But right now, that's the exact opposite of our culture. Our culture is so polarized right now. And unfortunately, many of our churches are following that same trajectory. Yep. 
that's why I'm excited to have you here because we need that. We need to be willing to move toward people who don't always necessarily think and look like us. Right. Why in the world? In this part of the podcast, we try to look at our motivations. Why do we do what we do? Why do we live lives that are different than the world? Why are people willing to go to difficult areas? Why do we seek to be at peace with all men? And why do we seek the betterment of others over ourselves? A lot of these things are very countercultural. And if we're honest, we don't live up to them a lot of the time. But this is the life we're called to, and that's what we're going to dive into in this part of the podcast. Today for Why in the World, we're going to be looking at a devotional written by Dr. Peter Borg. This devotional is part of the Reconcile series written in 2016. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Jeremiah 29.7 According to known population trends, chances are very high that you live in or near a major city. The massive urbanization of the world's population is a remarkable feature of the past hundred years. While in the ancient world, cities were viewed as hopeful places of law and order where learning and commerce could safely be conducted, this is not the case today. Cities in their surrounding suburbs are often marked by separations along racial and socioeconomic divisions. These divisions are often deliberately constructed by those in power to insulate themselves from the people they don't want to be around. Suspicion and hostility often result between people, even Christians, who live in such environments. Jeremiah 29 contains a letter the prophet wrote to the Jews whom King Nebuchadnezzar forced into exile in Babylon. The letter brought bad news. Namely, that their time as exiles in a foreign land would not be short. But the letter also gave specific instructions for how to thrive while there. Rather than spending their days waiting for God to rescue them from their current circumstances, Jeremiah encouraged the exiles to live full lives. His first set of instructions was simple, straightforward, and unexpected. He told the exiles to build and settle, plant and eat, marry and have children. Then they were to tell their kids to do the same. But Jeremiah wasn't done with his instructions on how the Jews were to live while in captivity. God's perspective on what thriving looked like was quite different from our normal human response toward those who make our lives uncomfortable. God stressed that he carried them into exile and that instead of becoming bitter toward their captors, they ought to desire peace and prosperity for their prison, the city of Babylon. Additionally, the Jews were to pray for Babylon because as it thrived, so too would they. The idea to pray for and seek the very best for our enemy was revolutionary and countercultural. Yet, it was God's best plan for his children living under duress. And it still is. I really enjoyed this devotional and honestly really love this passage. Just the way it talks about how we're supposed to respond in incredibly difficult and trying circumstances that honestly I can't relate to because I'm not actually in exile in the sense that the Jews were in that time. The nation of Israel was under actual captivity. Yes, I'm in some sort of exile in the culture I live in now, but it's so much different. Yet, I can still learn from this passage and have a response today that seeks the betterment of the city I live, the world I live in, wanting to build the kingdom here where I'm at right now, wanting to seek reconciliation with those who are different than me. And in the case of this passage, not even just those who are different than me, but those who are opposed to me, those who are my enemies. 
This is the countercultural life that we as Christians have been called to, to seek the prosperity of our enemy. This has been Why in the World? So now moving into the next part. So what I wanted to talk about today, we had had a conversation earlier off the podcast about the history of the Protestant churches in Milwaukee. Specifically, I was asking questions about Elmbrook. Like, how did Elmbrook respond in 1968? What did we do in the civil rights movement? What did we do in that time frame? I didn't know. And so rather than me sharing some of those things, do you just want to start sharing and then we'll just talk about that? Sure. You know, and I'm not sure how many people who currently attend Elmbrook really know much of its history. You can dive Um, into it if you want some. Yeah, I'll just very briefly. Uh, It started with five families, 13 people in 1957, who all attended other churches, but all lived out in the Elm, Elm Grove, Brookfield area, recognizing that maybe God would want them to start a church in that neighborhood and have them attend more locally close to home rather than driving far away to other places where they were attending. Those 13 people eventually became 30 people, and they started to meet uh, in living rooms. Then when they outgrew living rooms, they started to rent space at a public school. They ended up, uh, you know, with a full-time pastor after a while. But the Elmbrook that people who go there now and the the greater Milwaukee area tends to to know more about really began uh, in 1970 with the arrival of Jill and Stuart Briscoe. And they came from England, got the job because the current pastor, a man by the name of Bob Hobson, was leaving Elmbrook uh, to take over uh, as the North American director of Capon Ray, Ray, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, missionary fellowship. And so there was a series of preachers who came through and just was kind of filling the void uh, at Elmbrook. Stuart came in and, and preached three nights in a row, and legend has it on night two, Uh, Some elders pulled them aside and said, hey, would you want to be the pastor? Uh, And that fit in with what God was leading he and Jill because he was having to do a lot of traveling Mm -hmm. and their kids were becoming teenagers and that wasn't really a tenable situation for any longer. So they went through the process of picking up family and and moving to Wisconsin. They had to look for Milwaukee on a map. They had no idea (laughs) where it was. But it's interesting how much God had prepared them for it because they were working in England, but doing a lot of ministry to Germans. And, oh, I, did, I didn't you know, know that is, part. You know, if there is any cultural ethos in Milwaukee, particularly back in the, you know, the 60s and 70s, it was a German influence. And oh, so, yeah. so they landed here and they were warned by friends that Dwight Moody, you know, Moody Bible Institute, Moody Radio down in Chicago, uh, called it Milwaukee the graveyard for evangelists. Um, that it was the biggest city in the country that Billy Graham had never been invited to. And then if you weren't Lutheran or Catholic, uh, people assumed you were a cult. They were, uh, they kind of stepped into something that they didn't really expect, but had, God had really prepared them well uh, for it. For sure. So, yeah, so, so that, that's kind of an interesting beginning. I was fortunate during my dissertation to be able to interview uh, Stuart and Jill. And it was about a three-hour interview. So it was just, I, I reread the transcript this morning. And it was wonderful, one, just to see how in love they are still, you know, this far into life and the, the playful bantering back and forth and, and all that kind of stuff. That was really enjoyable to reread. They really helped me to, to begin to see where Elmbrook was uh, in their understanding and in their recognition, just a, a, a fuller perspective on life and on, on scripture 
even back in the 70s. Stewart talked a lot about how early on, uh, became friends with an associate pastor of Mount Moriah Baptist Church in Milwaukee, a man by the name of Julius Malone, who went on to be the founding pastor of New Testament Church, uh, which is still a, a very large African-American congregation. He invited Julius to come on out to, Stuart was the only staff member at Elmbrook, but he had staff meetings um, back at that time um, and invited Julius to come on out to those staff meetings, and he did, and they kind of developed a, a, a nice friendship. Uh, and then Julius then invited Stuart back um, into Milwaukee to meet his senior pastor and do a little bit of connecting there. But then here's where it got really interesting. Through Julius Malone, Stuart was introduced to another pastor, African-American pastor, whose name he doesn't remember. This gentleman was a little more kind of suspicious of white suburban Christians, which is only natural given the way that in large part white churches left the city as African-Americans moved into their neighborhoods and white believers had already left the city before the churches left the city. So this African-American pastor was a little bit vicious of Stuart and Stuart didn't help his cause, he said, uh, when at one point he asked this uh, pastor, what can we do to help you? And he says, boy, did that trigger him? And rightly so, Stuart recognizes now. I was just trying to, to, to come alongside and be helpful, but it came off in, in such a kind of paternalistic way that the guy responded, I don't need your help. I don't want your help. You know, but their, their friendship uh, forged through that, um, th those kind of turbulent waters to the point where they decided that it would be good for their congregations to do kind of a, a pulpit uh, sharing uh, situation. And so one, the first Sunday night, uh, this pastor and his wife and many of their members of the choir went out to Elmbrook and the choir performed. And then the following Sunday, it was Elmbrook's turn to go back to that church uh, and, and visit on a Sunday evening. And to their horror, Jill and Stuart were the only two people from Elmbrook to show up. Wow. At, at that point in the early 70s, um, you know, membership was, I, I believe, around 2,000. Hmm. I, I could be incorrect about that, but it was certainly over 1,000. But I think it was closer to 2,000. And, and so, they, I mean, they were just aghast. Stewart shared that he, he went up to the pastor afterwards and tried to apologize and said, my people were just afraid to come into the city at night. He said, the pastor immediately said to him, how do you think my people feel being forced to live here. Mm -hmm. We're no less afraid, you know? And he said, so that was a real eye-opening experience for, for Stuart and Jill. He said, I really began to recognize that there's a divide between white and black in America that as an Englishman, he's not going to, um, you know, be as aware of, right? Sure, he didn't grow up here. Right, right. Furthermore, it, it kind of tells a tale that I think is true, both from my, my research and from outside reading, in churches and in denominations, oftentimes the pastors and the denominational leaders may have have better scriptural understanding in general, but even in their application of it, there, there's a more mature application of it than the average layperson does. Whereas Stuart and Jill didn't mind going into Milwaukee uh, in the evening, everybody else didn't see how putting their lives at danger in their own minds could somehow be connected to a relationship with Jesus, which is really interesting because when we think about Jesus's incarnation, he didn't show up as the, the next Caesar. He didn't show up as 
you know, leading the Roman Empire. He was born to an unwed teenage mother of a politically and militarily oppressed people group, right? Like, there's nothing safe about that. But somehow we easily fall into the trap that faith is supposed to be safe, right? Jill said in the interview when relating this story, Elmbrook uh, folks being afraid to come into the city, Jill and Stuart and many Elmbrook people probably assuming that the African-Americans who were forced to live in the city, and I say that because of all sorts of government uh, regulations on restrictive covenants and redlining and zoning laws and things that I can get into later if you'd like, uh, force them to be there. Jill said it's like assuming that missionaries love snakes because they choose to go move overseas to some jungle area where there are large snakes. They must love snakes. Well, of course they don't love snakes. Nobody loves snakes, right? But God called them to go to this place where there happened to be snakes, and we've got to deal with our fear of snakes in order to go ahead and share the gospel with people who needed it. it you know, so she was saying, how silly of, of us to assume that, in that case, African-Americans just happen to love living in an area where all the white people are afraid to go to. Yeah. So it was a real eye-opening moment for them, but it didn't, it didn't stop uh, the relationship that he had with this pastor or with Julius Malone. And shortly after that, uh, Mark and Nancy Erickson uh, returned from being medical missionaries in Somalia, started a uh, Bible study on the east side and drew a a younger cohort of uh, either Christians or seekers. Uh, It was a very multiracial cohort. And so that was, you know, that was one uh, lived expression of what Stuart and Jill had learned from this unfortunate situation. Let's not give up. Let's Let's take another step forward and try in faith to do something. Naturally, it would be someone uh, like Mark Erickson who had lived in a country where he was in a a racial minority for for years to be the one to go ahead and and have the recognition and the wisdom that, oh, this makes sense uh, to go ahead and do this. So, you know, I think one of the hallmarks of my individual faith, uh, my walk with Jesus, yours and anyone else is we sin, God shows us to it, we seek forgiveness, we're forgiven, but we don't stop there. Then we keep, keep pushing forward and keep pushing forward. And, um, you know, in the, in, in the 70s and 80s under, under the Briscoes, that's what I saw Elmbrook doing. I find it so exciting that on this podcast, I get to keep diving into Elmbrook's rich history. I learned new things in this interview because I didn't realize that the Briscoes uh, were ministering to Germans before they came to the very German Milwaukee area, uh, which makes a ton of sense that they were able to relate and understood the people um, of Elmbrook Church and were able to grow that church. But I also, it's just really interesting to learn how they were building relationships with pastors in inner city Milwaukee and realized uh, small mistakes that they made along the way and how the church needed to grow and how that influenced um, a lot of things they did for Elmbrook Church. This was just the first part of this interview. There is a second part. And in that one, we're going to continue to dive into the Briscoe's interview with Dr. Peter Borg. But specifically, we're going to talk about how their experience, um, this experience with this inner city church um, exchange of congregations continued and continues to shape Elmbrook's trajectory. And I know in future podcasts, we're going to continue to dive into this idea of being reconcilers, of reconciling as a biblical theme and how it's 
has played out in Elmbrook's past and present. But after we're wrapping this up, the next interviews we're going to be diving into are actually going to be ones that have a more global look. We're going to be talking about Bible translation and wanting to make sure that every person on the planet has a Bible in their heart language. So that's what you guys can look forward to. And like I say, every week, continue to share this podcast with people that you think it might be encouraging. Uh, Like it, comment on it. And finally, thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of What in the World.